This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Charles Palliser about his novel Rustication. Then PW Children's Reviews Editor John Sellers will set the stage for next week's National Book Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Do you want to start with nonfiction this week? Well, uh, let's see. On on number five, we have uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, a, a best-selling author, uh, who's got a book called The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and The Golden Age of Journalism. This lands at number five, and Goodwin manages to make history very much alive and relevant. Better yet, the party politics are explicitly modern. Next up we have, this is number seven, is uh, Giada De Laurentiis, and and as I'd mentioned before, uh, we're going to start seeing, and we have been seeing, uh, various books, uh, cookbooks pop up on the list, uh, appropriate for holidays, either before or after. Uh, Last last week was the Pioneer Woman Cooks, and this year is Giada De Laurentiis' Feel Good Food, My Healthy Recipes and Secrets, perfect for right after the holidays. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what we have on uh, nonfiction. What do we have in fiction? Uh, well, at number two, we have a new Clive Cussler title, Mirage. Uh, and it's the ninth Oregon Files adventure, and it's a Clive Cussler thriller, Great. as you would expect. Uh, it is, once again, co-written. This time his co-author is Jack Dubrull, mm-hmm. and uh, it's part of the, the Oregon Files Series and uh, you know we say that it, it's it's a thriller it's a Clive Cussler thriller and right. it leads up to the usual nail biting conclusion though no one ever really expects his heroes to come in second and so that's at number two at number four we have Fanny Flagg uh, mm-hmm. she's the author of Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe I remember and uh, this is another great title the all girl filling stations last reunion mm. uh, and it's you know, got a very similar structure uh, the, the all girl filling station uh, was run by a quartet of Polish sisters during World War II they also flew planes uh, and this is about a woman who looks back to that part of her ancestry and journeys through her history. Uh, So readers looking for nuance will not find it here, says the Mm. PW Review, but there are plot twists, adventure, heartbreak, and familial love in spades, making this the kind of story that keeps readers turning pages in a fever. And at number seven is Amy Tan's new novel. I did not know she had a new novel coming out. It's her first novel since 2005 uh, when she brought out Saving Fish from Drowning. And again, she explores the complex relationships between mothers and daughters in this book, which is called The Valley of Amazement. Uh, Jump from bustling Shanghai to an isolated village in rural China and then to San Francisco at the turn of the 19th century, following three generations of women pulled apart by outside forces. And uh, we say that uh, her mastery of the lavish world of courtesans and Chinese customs continues to transport readers, even though uh, some choices make the story unnecessarily confusing. Mm -hmm. And finally, I would note that uh, we have 
a James Patterson title uh, called Merry Christmas, Alex Cross, which made the list, but it sold 6,476 copies, which for James Patterson is That's not, not actually very high. Right. Um, f- by comparison, Gone debuted with almost 50,000 copies sold. Oh. So maybe there's not so much of a market for an Alex Cross Christmas. Story. Right, I was just going to say exactly. Um, so I think that's it for the bestseller list this week, but uh, yeah, we're definitely getting into big book season and we can expect to see those big titles hitting the shelves until after the Christmas shopping season is done. Yeah, I'll be excited to see what we have next week. Indeed. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Charles Palliser will tell us what led him to publish his first novel since 1999. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Charles Palliser on the line. He's the author of Rustication, which the PW starred review called a provocative Victorian thriller. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So give us a little bit of an overview of the book. What's it about? Well, uh, it's always it's always hard to say what a, what a book's about, because in a way it works on on lots of different levels, or the author sees it as working on different levels. You know, at the, at the sort of top level, it's mostly the diary of a 17-year-old boy writing in the winter of 1863 uh, after some mysterious event has uh, had him expelled, rusticated from mm-hmm. Cambridge University, and he's come down to find his mother and his slightly older sister living in a dilapidated old house in a remote spot on the southern coast of England. And relations within the family are pretty bad. Uh, There's a mystery about why his father died, what the circumstances are, how the family lost its money at the death of the father, and why they were forced, really, to leave the nearby town where their father occupied a a prominent position in the, uh, the local religious hierarchy around the cathedral. And my central character, I can't really call him a hero because he, he, he does some pretty unheroic things. Uh, he's, he's quite mixed up. He's had a difficult childhood because of the nature of his father, which, as the book evolves, turns out to, to, to be pretty, pretty dark and pretty harsh, mm-hmm. uh, a bully and a drunk. Um, but in the course of the novel, Richard finds out much worse things about his father, really, uh, things that, that that are shocking and awful, and that combined with the fact that he's um, his family are penniless, uh, his degree is is now well, he's not going to get his degree. His prospects of finding a, a decent job are pretty minimal, as they, as they would have been at that time, if you didn't have connections and influence and so on. He's really burnt his boats, and he's in a pretty desperate situation, and he doesn't help things by resorting to both um, alcohol and, uh, I'm sorry to say, opium. Mm-hmm. And the idea that sort of troubled adolescents taking drink and drugs and obsessing about sex is anything new, you know, is, is, is quite erroneous. Um, the problems of a 17-year-old in 1863 are not really that different from the, the problems of a, of a 17-year-old, certainly when I was growing up. Uh, perhaps things have changed even more in the 50 or so years since I was uh, 17 than in the 100 years between Richard and me. I don't know. But, you know, Richard 
goes through an exaggerated version of some of the things I went through. I mean, I hasten to say the alcoholism, the drug abuse, the brutal father, all of that. No, I mean, that, so that wasn't my abuse. case. But, I mean, like, like, like many um, teenagers, you know, you, you, you felt you were adrift. You didn't know what sort of person you were going to try to be. Uh, you, you couldn't resist all the pressures on you. You were trying to define yourself. And uh, I think like a lot of a lot of teenagers, I think, believe that their their nearest and dearest have their, do not have their interests at heart, that their nearest and dearest are deeply inimical to them. And that was something that I wanted to explore. I think it's, it's a common adolescent fantasy. I mean, I had it a little bit, not, not very much, but Richard has it. And in Richard's case, I'm afraid it, it turns out to have a great deal of truth. The people he ought to be able to trust most turn out to have other designs and uh, other agendas in which he's really um, a pawn. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the sort of top level of, of it. I mean, I haven't mentioned that uh, Richard's behaviour seem to be increasingly eccentric and indeed um, um, reprehensible by the neighbourhood. He walks around a lot at night. He, he sort of falls in love with a succession of girls. And then somebody starts circulating really vicious anonymous letters in the neighbourhood and it looks horribly as if Richard is the author of them. So things things get get worse and worse. They go from bad to worse for for Richard. But that's that's the sort of plot level. That's the sort of narrative level. I mean, I suppose uh, at the other level. I mean, I suppose it's about it's about a subject that I think all my books are about really, which is uh, how you make something out of the circumstances in which your life has thrust you. Uh, how you achieve self-definition and independence. And, and I've looked at that, I suppose, at different ages, different stages in people's lives, childhood, middle age. And now I'm, I'm looking at it really in, I suppose, the most crucial period of all, adolescence, which is when everything is really starts to be set in stone. The, the sort of flexibility and fluidity of childhood starts to harden. And that will be very much determined by the circumstances around you. And Richard is born into a set of circumstances which put tremendous pressures and force him into different directions and he he finds that he has to resist them and actually in a way I think he emerges as quite quite a courageous figure by the end of the book without giving anything away I mean he's really seen that he has to make uh, a choice between life and death he has to risk everything in order to try to break free and, and, and salvage something from the, the wreckage that his life is already in danger of becoming. So you said he's not a very heroic hero, but it sounds like maybe by the end he finds a little bit of heroism in himself. Well, he, he, does, he does behave... Um, he goes through a kind of um, progress in which his behavior starts by being fairly bad and it deteriorates dramatically and becomes really very, very bad indeed. And the reader, I think, will, will wonder where is this young man going? What what possible future is he facing? But because of various uh, factors in his character and because of the good luck of of just two people, really, around him, he actually manages to kind of get a handhold and sort of claw his way back towards sanity and, and, and decency. And the, the people who who help him are actually two... Characters who, when I started writing the book, I thought were going to be very minor and not really awfully admirable. But actually, the, the sort of the most despised and weakest people in the book 
actually turn out to be the the, the, the crucial ones for Richard and, and turn out to be the strongest. And that rather surprised me, as a matter of fact, as well as surprising Richard. Sure, sure. Now, your, your book is set in the Victorian era. What, what is it about that period that fascinates you? Um, I think um, the thing that really interests me is that, is that it's so near and so far. Um, I mean, Richard would have been about the age of, uh, I suppose, about the age of my great-great-grandfather, perhaps. Uh, so it's only a few generations away. And in a lot of ways, the modern world was sort of in place by the mid-Victorian period. I mean, t- railways, t- t- telegraphs, a lot of the, the sort of basic inventions that we take for granted, not the electronic revolution, which has been, I suppose, the second big revolution, but the kind of mechanical revolution had already taken place. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of things were, were not that different from, from the present situation. But in other ways, of course, things are dramatically different. A lot of the um, expectations and the conventions for how people behave uh, have altered quite a lot. Uh, obviously, the whole area of um, sexuality, but it's it's not that teenagers didn't go in for sex in the 1860s. It's that there was much more hypocrisy and shame and confusion about all of that, and that's something that that, that Richard has to experience. And I suppose one of the great differences is that Richard does show respect for his mother. His his father's now dead. But he shows respect for his mother, even when he thinks she's she's wrong and she's misjudging the situation. He still believes that it's right to obey her as far as he can. He doesn't kind of question that until quite far into the book, when he does actually start to realise that that he has to he has to break that that I suppose really crucial rule of of of, of, of Victorian life, which is uh, obedience to your parents. He has to distance himself from what his mother is saying, and he has to see her values in a, in a context, and he has to see that her, the values she's living by and is trying to impose on him are, are wrong. They're, they're snobbish, uh, they're hypocritical, um, they're materialistic, and, and so on. Sure. And I suppose it's, I, I began to realize that the logic of it was that um, Richard would eventually realize that if he had a future, it lay in the new world. It, 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 it would lie in North America, uh, in fact, not the United States, but as it turns out, Canada, because by that stage, a lot of a lot of young people were emigrating to Canada, mm-hmm. and that becomes his idea of how he can break away from the stifling uh, social structures that are, that are tra- trapping him and imprisoning him, and 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 kind of breathe the fresh air of uh, of, uh, of an undeveloped country in in Canada. That becomes his his hope. And you mentioned that the book surprised you as you went along. So are you not an outline writer? Do you just kind of start at the beginning and keep going till you reach the end? Well, I, I, what I do is I, I, I do start with an outline. I, do, I don't now actually write. I don't start writing until I've got a pretty clear idea of the first um, kind of um, phase of the novel. Uh, when, I, when I started writing 25 years ago, I just plunged in and wrote, and I quite soon find that you, you're in danger of just completely getting lost um, you've got to got to have an idea of where you're going. So what I now do is I I work out kind of beyond up to about the halfway point or the, just a bit beyond of the novel where the kind of whole impetus is there. I've I've worked that out, but I don't actually know which way it's going to go. I, I, so I find that that keeps me 
interested and curious. If I worked the whole thing out, uh, it really would, I would not feel such a d d drive to write it because writing it has to be a process of exploring. Yeah, I, I find the same thing with my own writing as the times that I've outlined things. I look at it and go, well, I'm done then. <laughs> and then I never write it. Yes. No, I think that, that, that absolutely is a great danger. And the other great danger, I think, for, for a writer is, I mean, Hemingway said this, don't talk it, write it. Never tell people about what you're writing. Mm. Um, not out of superstition, but because what's driving you is the urge to communicate. And if you communicate it to your friends in conversation, the, the urge to communicate it in, in, the, in the novel will actually gradually uh, dissolve and dissipate. And speaking of writing, this is your first novel since 1999. So this yes, it is. a long time in coming. Did you spend uh, a lot of that time writing or, or working on other projects? Or were you talking about this? <laughs> well, I, I have this very bad habit, and I've always done this, of working on a number of different uh, novels simultaneously. I, I know that amazes most of the people I know who write novels. Um, so I, I, I work on maybe three, four at once, wow. and then one of them kind of takes over, and I push the others onto the, the back burner and concentrate. So, weirdly enough, although I only finished this novel a bit over a year ago, I'm actually in the final stages of two other novels. It just happens that they've all kind of come to the boil mm -hmm. <laughs> at sure. roughly the same moment. So you're having triplets, basically. I suppose I am, in a way, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I think the process of birth will, 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 will still take several more years, and the final phase can, can actually take quite a long time. And I do that partly, partly because um, when you're writing a novel of one kind, you'll be using a lot of uh, sort of parts of your imagination, and you can you can actually get exhausted, I think, or drained or something. So I find that if I just switch to something totally different, and they always are totally different, suddenly another part of my brain perks up and and starts working. So I'm kind of resting the bit that's been writing one novel. And, and if I may ask, the other two novels, are they thrillers as well, or are they... They're totally, totally different. Oh. Um, I, 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 I don't want to say t too much about them, because sure. who knows, I may actually drop them at a late stage and do something else, but one of them is actually for children, oh. so it couldn't be more different. Sure. And the other one is quite a dark novel set during the Second World War, so again, it's, it's not the, second, it's not the um, Victorian period. It's, the modern, it's comparatively the modern period. Wow, they are very different. Now, now you've also published four other novels, and you've written TV, theater, and, and radio. Can you tell us a little bit about those projects and how they may work together or work against one another? Uh, well, I, I, I haven't really done much uh, radio or television. I've, I've done a couple of plays for radio and, 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 uh, and a very short film for television. It's hard to say. I, I, I think... Um, I think I see myself as pretty much as a novelist now who occasionally dabbles in other things. Uh, I, I, I do love the medium of radio, though, and, and I, I, I would like to do more on that. Uh, the r r radio is, 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 has the advantage for the writer that um, it, it's a very direct way of communicating with your audience. Uh, if you write for the theatre, or God help you, if you write for television or cinema, there's a whole lot, lot of people who will be intermediaries between what you've got on the page and what will actually come across to the audience. But with radio, it, there's not much damage they can do. That's, <laughs> that's how I put it. The, the director can't do too much damage because they've still got to use your words. That's all they've got. Mm -hmm. 
but really, um, it, it is novels that I that I uh, that I, I like. I mean, there's there's so much freedom with a novel. If you if you're writing for any other medium like radio or movies, you're always constrained by things like uh, length of time, uh, size of cast, cost of production, and then the whole the whole business about what 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 the market will be looking for at the moment when you offer your film script or your TV script. But with a novel, you've got much more freedom. You can do what you like. You can have a cast of thousands or one old lady uh, sitting in a one-room cottage. Um, it can be about absolutely anything. Uh, th 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 there's just much more scope for just following your own bent in a novel. And you've also written the introduction to the Penguin Classic series of Sherlock Holmes stories. Can you tell us a little bit about what the the Holmes works mean to you and to your writing? Oh yes, gosh, you you, what, you, have, you have done your research. Yes. Yeah, we do our homework. <laughs> uh, right. Well, um, yes, I I, I I I loved Sherlock Holmes when I was a, a child, as, as as many children do. Um, I think. Um, the cleverness, the wit, the wit, and so on of the way he uh, constructed the, the the mysteries. I mean, Conan Doyle, not Sherlock Holmes, constructed those mysteries. I suppose, in a way, that's that's something of a kind of um, base ground plan for for most later uh, mystery fiction. Um, and the other thing I, I love about about uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories is just the atmosphere, the, the sort of London in a fog. Uh, a handsome cab looping up out of the darkness with its lights blazing and somebody calling out there's been a dreadful murder and things like that. Um, I, I, I'm a real sucker for that sort of um, evocation of a physical atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's one reason why I, 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 I have tended to stay in the Victorian period. It seems to me that just the physicality of life in earlier periods is so much greater than it is now. You know, now we're insulated, aren't we? We, we get in and out of cars and in and out of air-conditioned uh, trains and planes, uh, air-conditioned houses and so on. Um, in the Victorian period, you know, when it was a cold, wet day, you were cold and wet, even if you were indoors, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you wanted to go somewhere, you, you had to muffle up and you had to, to go outside and probably get into a clanking carriage and be carted off. And I, I, I love that. It gives you as a reader, it gives you a, a greater sense of, um, of, of, a, of a physical experience than you do now if, if your character simply gets into a car and drives somewhere. We've been talking with Charles Palliser. You can find his book, Rustication, in stores right now. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers tells us what to expect from next week's National Book Awards, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is here to talk about the National Book Awards coming up next week. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good, good. It's going pretty well. So uh, tell us a little bit about the nominees for the children's side of the National Book Awards. Absolutely. So there's uh, there's five uh, nominees uh, this year, as there usually are. Um, the Young People's Literature category um, is only as old as 1996, though uh, the National Book Foundation has or they have given out previous uh, children's awards under, under different names uh, beforehand. But um, yeah, there are five uh, 
uh, five uh, finalists this year, and they are in the font of the categories of middle grade and young adult fiction. And it's a it's a nice mix of titles this year. Um, you know, PW actually starred uh, gave starred reviews to all five of these books, so they were ones that we we liked quite a bit. And is the is the category always middle grade fiction? Uh, it's not. Uh, it, it does. It can encompass both middle grade and you know young adult t- right. titles. Typically, we don't usually talk about picture books um, with this award. Mm-hmm. Um, I will. I will say the last the, the last few years the winners have tended to be middle grade. So I'm not sure if that tips the the scales in favor of this year's middle grade books or not. But uh, I guess we'll see next week. I feel like there are a lot of awards for children's books and you know medals and honors and so forth. Um, in in that context. How much does the National Book Award matter? Like, how much weight does it carry? I think it carries quite a bit. I mean, I think it's certainly, you know, the, I would, you know, along with the Newberry and the Caldecott and um, the Prince, for, for which is a young adult award, I think those really, you know, constitute, you know, certainly in the top tier of awards, and I, I do think that they carry a lot of weight for, um, you know, for readers and certainly for the publishers are thrilled, you know, just to be a finalist, let alone, um, you know, an, uh, a winner. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if you like, I'm happy to talk a little bit about uh, the five titles uh, for this year. Please. Um, I guess I'll start with the, the middle grade stuff. And on, um, on that side, um, the, the first one is a book called The True Blue Scouts of Sugarman Swamp by Kathy Appelt. Um, and uh, she's actually a second-time uh, finalist. And this book actually reminds me a little bit of her, her previous book, The Underneath, which... Um, because both of them are sort of, uh, they, they sort of fit, fall into that sort of talking animals uh, genre of fiction. Uh, she she sets them in sort of South Texas swamps and things like that. And they're really, really fun stories with really sort of lively uh, folksy settings and characters and that sort of thing. Right. So it's a very, very fun book, a very sweet book, um, but still exciting. This, this one's about a pair of raccoons who are sort of charged with the task of helping uh, protect their swamp, which is uh, coming under threat from a an alligator wrestler who wants to turn it into a theme park. So, very fun story there. Um, and then, also on the middle grade side, um, a little bit more, or maybe a lot more on the, on the realistic side, is a book called uh, The Thing About Luck by Cynthia Kadohara. Um, it's also a middle grade novel, and it's set during the present. Um, it's about a, a Japanese-American family of what are called custom harvesters, um, basically, they, they travel the Midwest uh, during the harvest season, offering their labor and equipment uh, to farms that need their help, as opposed to managing a farm of their own. Uh, so this book has a lot of really fascinating deals about sort of modern farming in the U.S. and you know, the pressures that, um, that the farmers and laborers are under when there's just this very small sort of harvest window in which you need to make your money kind of for the year, mm-hmm. and if things don't go according to plan, uh, it can be really stressful. Um, so those are both, you know, sort of two poles of things on the uh, on the middle grade side. Yeah, getting to a little bit more of the young adult. Um, there's a book uh, called Far Far Away uh, by Tom McNeil. Um, I believe it's the first young adult book he's written uh, solo. Though he he has written um, uh, previous books with his wife Laura McNeil, who actually was up for a National Book Award uh, herself a couple years ago. So um, whether he wins or not, they're at least even. Um, <laughs> it's very um, but this one, I'm sorry. It's very important in a marriage. To, <laughs> yes, you know, especially when you're both writers, numbers. you know. <laughs> um, but uh, this one, it, I, I certainly, this was certainly, I would call a, per, a personal favorite from the past year. It was actually one of the books we named uh, a best book. Uh, uh, this past uh, for 2013, as well as uh, the previous book, uh, The Thing About Luck. But um, this one is also set sort of in the present day, um, and, and it's a contemporary story, but 
it also has um, a lot of, um, it sort of really harkens back to fairy tales and uh, the supernatural. Um, basically, there's this teenage boy who has the ghost of Jacob Grimm, uh, one of the brothers Grimm, is sort of in communication with him, and he's the only one who can hear him. So the, the Jacob Grimm is constantly sort of advising Jeremy, Jeremy and you know, commenting on his life, but things in their town, in, in Jeremy's town, start to take a really dark turn, and children are disappearing, and... Um, Jacob doesn't quite notice the danger until it's too late, and then as a ghost, there's only so much he can do about it. So it's a very creepy story, and then very good, really interesting. And it's sort of, you know, we have all these stories about Rapunzel in that tower, and Hansel and Gretel get captured by a witch, all these, these fairy tales, sort of ideas, and this one sort of brings some of that same sort of horror into a very, what feels like a very real present-day setting. So very interesting book. I like that one a lot. Yeah. Um, and then uh, next is another YA novel, Picture Me Gone, by Meg Rosoff. Uh, she is a previous uh, winner of the Prince Award as well as the Carnegie Medal. So, you know, this really is, uh, in terms of the five finalists this year, uh, a pretty heavy award-winning crew of writers. Uh, they all have, you know, had several accolades for their previous uh, previous work. Um, but in Picture Me Gone, uh, a British girl named Myla uh, accompanies her father to upstate New York to look for a friend of his uh, who's gone missing. Um, she's very, you know, almost preternaturally observant, and as they uh, try to unravel the mystery, she starts to understand that things are not quite as they seem, including what her parents um, have told her about the situation. So, um, very interesting book. Her, her observations really sort of make it, I mean, the, the writing is very beautiful, so it's a really intriguing sort of kind of coming of age story in terms of sort of waking up to sort of the adult, like the problems, very adult problems, and even as a child sort of waking up to the parents or adults around you aren't necessarily, uh, don't have it all together. Um, this was also one of our best books of the year for PW this year. And then uh, finally, the last one is uh, actually a pair of books, uh, Boxers and Saints uh, by Jean uh, Luen Yang. Um, they're a pair of graphic novels that were published together, and they're sort of two sides of the, the same story, really. Mm -hmm. They're um, he's using the graphic novel format to examine the opposing sides of the Boxer Rebellion in China uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, so on one hand, you've got a book about these Chinese peasants with strong ties to their own, you know, their gods and heroes, and they feel threatened by uh, the influx of Christianity and missionaries. And on the other hand, you have these, the missionaries who are doing you know, some genuine good in the area. Uh, that second book, uh, Saints, focuses on a girl who is sort of an outcast in her own village, but she finds a home with the missionaries. Um, so in this comic, you know, Yang, he, he really kind of humanizes uh, both sides of the conflict and makes you understand where they're coming from. Um, but he also doesn't downplay some really horrible, brutal things that take place. It's, 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 it's actually quite uh, a violent pair of books, a lot of uh, beheadings and stabbings and that sort of stuff. I, I think the, com the comic book uh, graphic novel format helps make that, you know, it's, 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 not, it's, it's still horrifying, but it's horrifying in a way that isn't too uh, you know, completely disturbing, I guess. Um, and he was also up for National uh, Book Award back in 2006 for another graphic novel, uh, American Born Chinese. Right, I was so, going to say, that's that's where I know his name from. That, that graphic yeah. novel got a lot of attention, very much outside of kind of comic book graphic novel circles. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So, it, it's, you know, it's a, nice, it's a really nice mix of stories. You've got, you know, things that are historical, things that are um, contemporary and really relatable, things that are a little bit more fun and magical, and things that are magical but maybe a little less fun, a little more scary. So... It's a, it's, a, it's a good mix of titles, and again, all ones that we uh, really enjoyed this past year at PW. So, so do you have a favorite? Do you have one that you, you think is oh, to win? You know, I mean, one that you literally four, four, or five, four out of these five books did make our best, uh, best books of the year list. Wow. Um, I will say that I'm... Uh, 
terrible at predicting these things. Uh, <laughs> last year's winner was a book called Goblin of Secrets by William Alexander. Um, not a bad book at all, but I would definitely say it's a dark horse, and I don't think anybody would have expected that one to win, though it's wonderful that it did. Right. Um, so, like I said, you know, there's been a lot of middle grade winners in the last couple of years. So I don't know. Um, I don't know what that means for this year. If that's gonna, that trend's gonna continue, or if maybe they'll swing to one of uh, these young adult titles. Um, I don't know. It's certainly been a while, if ever, that a graphic novel has uh, taken it home in this category. So, maybe overdue in that regard. We'll have to see. Well, it sounds exciting, and we'll be uh, staying tuned uh, next week when the awards are announced. And, and that's Wednesday night, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, So, and of course there will be all sorts of coverage on PW's website, so uh, all, any of our listeners who are waiting on the edges of their seats can keep an eye on it there. Well, John, thank you so much, and it's always great to have you on the show. Absolutely, come back anytime. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 